This is All About Wine on Blog Talk Radio, the talk show dedicated to the wine industry since 2009, featuring winemaker, cellar master, vineyardist, and tasting expert, Ron. Basically what we're trying to do on this program is just trying to educate people and trying to make wine less confusing and more friendly. From coast to coast and around the world. You know, we really have had some some neat people on the program. I, I just, I love that. Call our guest line at any time during the live show at area code 646-727-3235. And let's talk about wine. Again, the phone number to call is 646-727-3235. And now, All About Wine is on. Here's Ron. Wow. Why, wow. Beautiful weather. That's, they're all excited. It is gorgeous here in Florida. Well, we had two weeks off, too. Well, we took a week, a week or two weeks. Was it? Yeah, last, last, last week we weren't here. So, last so week. Uh, okay, so, uh, and they're, they're happy we're back. Chance, <laughs> had a chance to, to go to a dinner, and so I did. So, but, yeah, awesome. uh, <clears throat> a, uh, we're back. We're we're here, and mm-hmm. uh, already beautiful weather here in Florida. Gorgeous. Bus people Absolutely. are thrilled about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, just you know the the Chamber of Commerce weather. This is I I refer mm-hmm. to it as Chamber of Commerce weather. This is when the Chamber of Commerce says this is Florida. You need to move here, and everybody comes down in That's this right. week, and they go, Yeah, this is great. Mm-hmm. And, That's right. You know, and then and hurricane then, season comes around and blows that dream away. <laughs> yes, and then the humidity and the love bugs come, and it gets to be 90 yep. degrees temperature and 98 degrees humidity, and they go, yep. it's hot here. Well, yeah, we're Florida. Yep. Didn't we invent the uh, love bugs? Didn't that, didn't that uh, college, um, what was it? They invented that to get rid of something else, the love nope. bugs. Didn't nope. they, uh, now that's, they bred, I thought that's they bred them. <laughs> a very common misconception. Everybody um, says University of Florida right. brought the love bugs here for food for the songbirds, and the songbirds wouldn't eat them because they were so acidic. And that's not true. That's not a. It's a very common myth <laughs> that floats in Florida. The okay. Love bugs actually came from Central America and South America, and they worked their way up. And across, just like fire ants, fire ants came from uh, Central and South America, and they've worked their way up to uh, Mexico and then Texas and across the southern part of the thing. Love bugs are the same way. They've worked their way up here through the years, <laughs> and the bullet ant is mm-hmm. the next one we're going to be seeing coming to the area. Uh, the fire ant is it, when it bites you, it feels like you've been burned by a match, like you've been burned by a little mm-hmm. fire. Yeah. The bullet ants, when it bites you, it feels like you've been shot by a bullet. Oh, uh, great! Yeah, the pain is a lot worse than what people say. So they're working their way up. They're, uh, I think they're, I don't know if they're in Texas yet or not, but uh, the bullet ant is our next one. But yeah, the the love bug, the and all that just naturally worked away See, I, up and over. I always thought it. I thought it was bred that way at the university 
because it was like our response to the salt up in the north because we don't use salt on the road down here for snow and ice and all that kind of stuff. So I figured we needed something that ate the paint off the cars, that looked terrible on our cars, and we didn't salt and our roads. We didn't have salt. to. And they, and they thought, why don't we invent an insect that sticks to everything on your car? Yeah. You can't get it off. Very acidic. And eventually, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. but that's not the case. Huh, wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a good that's theory, it. though. That that really, that's and it works. Point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it looks terrible. <laughs> yeah. The worst. Yeah, that works. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, can't get rid of them. They uh, they love to uh, visit us. So you'll have you'll have that to look forward to. They won't tell you that on the uh, Chamber of Commerce uh, promotions, nope. though. They won't tell you nope. that. No, nope. or the humidity. Nope. Oh no, it's perfect year round. Yeah, just like right. this all year round. No. Then you move, move down to here. Florida. And... Yeah. <laughs> Come to move Florida. To Florida. <laughs> yeah, and they laugh. <laughs> yeah. We got some more no. coming in paying taxes. That's right, sucker. <laughs> <laughs> they're laughing all the way to the bank. Oh, um, <laughs> we don't have a shark problem here either. Nope, none of that. No, stuff. nope, <laughs> no sharks. Nor, nor do we have an alligator problem. Yeah. I've never seen an alligator. <laughs> you, you haven't? Yeah, I've seen tons of them. Yeah, yeah. I told you about my, yeah. I told you about my canoeing, my canoeing adventure that on the Hillsborough River. I'll never do that again. But yeah, um, yeah. Those things are huge. Oh, I, told you, I told you about the one that was on the front sidewalk of the winery too. I mean, you know. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they pay they pay uh, home visits, but uh, you're not going to see that in the literature. The brochures. No, you never do. You <laughs> never see that. Mm-hmm. Now they're everywhere. Florida is every- <laughs> they are, <laughs> and you don't and, know it. <laughs> and you don't know it. Any body of water has an alligator. That's just rule yep. number one. Yep. And. Yeah. Uh, then, uh, right. <laughs> and then all the little lizards too down here, all the little annual <laughs> lizards that are running all over the place, which scares the bejesus out of some people, you know. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, no, they're everywhere. They get into everything. Yeah. We're the tropics, yeah. though. I mean, you have to realize we are the tropics, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yep. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, now that we've heard uh, the economy in Florida. <laughs> yeah. Today on with the show. Is, yeah, <laughs> yeah move to Florida. We, today is Vietnam Veterans Day. Last year, President Trump signed into law Vietnam's Veterans Day on the 29th of March. So it is an actual day now to celebrate Vietnam veterans or to honor Vietnam veterans. So, mark your calendars, Vietnam Veterans Day you know, on the 29th of March every year, and uh, which, as a Vietnam veteran, I want to thank the president for doing that and being recognized. Because I'll tell you, I think the Vietnam veterans are probably least recognized of anybody that's came back from any conflict overseas. So, yeah, definitely. So, I'm uh, I'm glad that glad that the recognition is finally there. Not and it was it was it was also the hardest one to come back home to, wasn't it? Um, didn't the at the time the the American people? Uh, I God, I mean that was I'm not going to say it's before my time, but it was before I could understand time. 
Yeah. That, that was, yeah, but um, the American totally, people totally, were not very receptive. Not, not receptive. at all. And, and in reality, I got spat on um, in uh, mm. Washington. Up in Seattle, Washington, I got spit on and called a baby killer. And wow. I just looked, I, I was, I was dumbfounded. I said, I don't, I, I'm not a baby killer. And they just shook their head and walked away. And, uh, wow. you know, so, you know, it just, you know, that was one of my instances of, of coming back from Vietnam. And there's a lot of them around. Uh, yep. And so it was, a, it, you know, the PTSD. I, I talked to a Vietnam veteran uh, a couple of weeks ago, I guess it's been now. And whenever you uh, you meet a Vietnam veteran, I always ask him when you were in country, in country, basically when you were in Vietnam, and they know, you know, what you're talking about when you say in country. When were you in country, and it's you know what years you were. I was over there in 1970, and I had this one Vietnam veteran I talked to. I said, "When were you in country?" And he looked at me and he says, "Last night." And I go, "Ooh, <laughs> I mean, that was really you know it stays in your head, and it just you know." Uh, years later, it gets to you. I thought that was that's the first one that's ever answered me that way, and I thought, wow, you know, that's they're still being there. You understand, you know. So, so but yeah. wow, they honor him today. So do so if you uh, see a Vietnam veteran, you know, uh, you know, thank them for thank them for serving and welcome them home. That's something I. Else, I always do when I see a Vietnam veteran, I welcome them home because we weren't properly welcomed home when we came home. So now is a good time to do it as any. So, but let me get off my soapbox here about Vietnam veterans. Also coming up Sunday, and actually starts tomorrow night, Passover. Sunday is Easter, and uh, we got that holiday. If you want to check on archives, I think it was. What, three years ago, we talked to a rabbi, uh, and he explained to us a lot of stuff about Easter and the kosher and different things like that. So our Passover, not so much Easter, Passover. So if you get an opportunity, you might want to check out archives on that. And we've done some shows about Egyptian wines, or Israeli wines, I'm sorry, Egyptian, Israeli wines. Uh, done a couple of shows on that too. So you can check those out if you're interested in that about Easter. I'm not going to get into it tonight. I do have lots of old stuff to talk about here. Uh, there, there's an article on phylloxera that's phenomenal. I, I just really, really enjoyed reading it. And as I was reading, I said, there's no way I can give this justice by trying to tell you about it, just trying to do it. So in a few minutes here, I am going to read the article to you. I think that's the best way to convey everything. It's rather long, but that will basically be the program. Uh, do we have a guest? Or we have a call-in? Or is that my uh, call? No. Let me uh, let me check and see what I can find out. I'll be right back. Okay. Just right. Keep going. Um, but we have some... Uh, uh, we have some stuff uh, to talk about, and then I'll talk about the phylloxera, everything you've ever wanted to know about phylloxera, and what it is, and what it involved, and what it's all about, and all that. So, well, it doesn't look like they wanted to talk to us. No. 
Maybe they just were listening. Uh, first, though, what are we going to celebrate with wine this coming week? Today is the time. We missed last week. Uh, if you missed last week, uh, Sunday the 25th was International Waffle Day. Uh, Friday was National Chips and Dip Day. Last Monday was National Spinach Day. Uh, lots of stuff we missed. But 29th, National Lemon Chiffon Cake Day. Open yourself up a Moscato and have it with your lemon chiffon cake. That should be fun to have there. Tomorrow, whole grain day. I guess whole grain breads or any any number of things. And then come Saturday, oyster on the half shell. Or oysters, fresh oysters. Uh, I love those. I like fresh oysters. They're always, always good. My, uh, Sunday, Easter, and it's also National Sourdough Bread Day. Coming up in April, though, we have National BLT Sandwich Month. Oh, I'd like a good bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich. You know, just I haven't had one in like a hundred years. National Soft Pretzel Month is in April. National Soy Foods Month. And uh, do you ever use mayonnaise on your grilled cheese? You use mayonnaise. I use butter when I do it. Yeah, well, really. You, yeah. You, <laughs> you do? You don't. No, I use butter. I don't use mayonnaise. Mayonnaise, I tried it. Everybody says, oh, you should use mayonnaise on your grilled cheese. Mm-hmm. I tried it once and oh my gosh. It was just like, no. this isn't grilled cheese. Mm-hmm. You know, so, but don't use it. My suggestion, all about wine, endorses butter, not mayonnaise for your grilled cheese. Um, let's see. National Garlic Month is uh, next month, too. So that's something else to to look forward to for yourself, not for someone around you, I guess. And then Tuesday, the 2nd, National Peanut Butter and Jelly Day. Wednesday, or that's Monday, the 2nd. Tuesday, the 3rd, National Chocolate Moose Day. Wednesday, the 4th, National Carrot Day. And then Thursday, the 5th, which is a week from today's Caramel Day. And it's National Raisin and Spice Bar Day. So there are our foods and tastes for this coming week so that you can have wine to pair it with things. And then a couple more things, new items. A couple more new items are three new items or two, two new items. Apocalyptic, uh, apocalyptic edition, the Walking Dead wine, the last wine company, which is a brand of Treasury Wine Estates, has introduced the Walking Dead wine collection. If you watch Walking Dead, it's on Sunday. I am a Walking Dead fan myself. Uh, I think of it as a training ground when the great zombie apocalypse hits us. 13.5% alcohol by volume. The collection is comprised of a 2016 Cabernet Sauvignon and a 2015 Blood Red Blend, which makes sense. The wines feature labels inspired by the comic and TV series The Walking Dead and respond to the Living Wine Labels app, which is an augmented reality app that brings the labels to life. So if you see the wines are uh, buy them then use your smartphone 
for the wine labels app, and they'll come to life for you. California wine available nationally. Suggest a retail price, $18.99 for the 750 milliliter bottle. And one other new wine for you that's out now, Austin Hope. It's a brand of the Hope Family Wines. Introduced the 2015 Austin Hope Cabernet Sauvignon. Is the first Cabernet Sauvignon released by this company, uh, by this brand. Actually, the red wine features a deep ruby color with aromas of freshly picked by current ripe black cherries and blackberries with subtle notes of violet, mocha, and dried spices. So the company spokesman says. On the palate, the wine is layered with juicy blackberry and cherry fruit with nuances of cheddar, clove, nutmeg, and vanilla bean, which rounds out a long, smooth finish, it adds. 15% alcohol. The 2015 Austin Hope Cabernet is packaged in a 750 bottle and has a suggested retail price nationally of $50. It's distributed by National out of... uh, uh, Hope Family Wines, if you're interested in that. Hope Family Wines out of Paso Robles, California. The other one I just read to you, too, I didn't tell you that. It's uh, Distribution National. It's Internet. It's walkingdeadwine.com. It's Treasury Wines out of Napa. So a couple of new wines on the market, a couple of new ones you can check out. Uh, oh, okay, I did have one. I thought I had three. This one is Virtuous Edition. Uh, Four Virtues Bourbon Barrel Zimindel. National distribution on this. Also, Rutherford Wine Company. The Rutherford Wine Company has announced the launch of Four Virtues Bourbon Barrel Zimindel 2016. Packaged in a contemporary whiskey-inspired bottle. And it does look a little bit like a whiskey bottle. The bold Zimindel combines fruit from the Lodi Appalachian with the flavor from bourbon barrel aging. 16.8% 16.8% alcohol by volume. That's pretty high there. The wine is aged in French and American oak barrels before being finished in bourbon whiskey barrels. Four virtues feature flavors and aromas of bright raspberry, cherry, and juicy blackberry with hints of caramel, vanilla, and toasty oak, they add. 750 bottle of Four Virtues has suggested retail price of $25. That, that's a good price, a whiskey Aged Zimadol. That that sounds good. I like a Zimadol anyway. That whiskey age could add some depth to it. So there you go. Uh, Okay, let's see. Phylloxera. We have talked about phylloxera many times in the past. We mentioned it about um, whenever we've talked about things. It's been an ongoing topic off and on over the years that I have explain, talk about, and it shaped the wine world actually a lot. I found this article. This is from 750 Daily, uh, where the name came from. I don't know, but 750 Daily. You can subscribe to 750. I did. They got some great, great articles and some good writers on this. I was really quite impressed by what they are doing with this site. You can subscribe to it. They'll give you, uh, I think every other day I've been getting it, something like that. I'm not sure. It was it says 750 daily, so maybe it is daily, and I'm just missing some of them. But a, a great site. 
this is from that. I read this and I thought, wow, I'm this is a lot of good stuff. And instead of paraphrasing it, instead of going through and paraphrasing all this for you, I thought that I'm just going to read it to you. And I haven't sat and just read an article to you, I don't think ever, in the nine-plus years the program's been on now, because I'd rather just talk about it. But this is a lot of information, a lot of stuff here, and it will basically be the program once I go through this. If you have any more questions, if you have anything, you can follow up, you can call me, you can email me. Uh, you can uh, Facebook me. All of these are available on All About Wine. So, if uh, any other questions, but this is really quite comprehensive. Again, daily dot seven fifty, and it's s e v e n f i f t y dot com. Great site. This is where this is from. It's entitled "Measuring Phylloxera's Impact on the World." Um, it's by Kelly White who wrote this uh, just recently, about a couple months ago. Turmoil raged around the globe, but the near century between the conclusion of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815 and the advent of World War I in 1914 was a time of rising prosperity for much of Europe. The mad rush to colonize the world had largely subsided, and the major powers within Europe and Russia had stopped fighting over the pieces, mostly. Cities swelled as the Industrial Revolution transformed and urbanized the landscape, and the New World was being plundered for raw materials to feed its machines. Meanwhile, the population, especially within France, enjoyed an improved standard of living, The citizens celebrated their rising status with an increased thirst for wine, and land under vine swelled accordingly. Advancements in technology had shortened the journey between continents. Liberated from the vagaries of the wind, steam-powered ships sliced through ocean waves at record clips. Their hulls, made first of wood and later of steel, bulged with exotic bounty. Globalization had descended. The world had been cracked open and untold delights had tumbled out to be collected and disseminated across Europe. The tomato and Italy, lovers in the past, had been united, but not all the New World's gifts would prove so benevolent. One particular pest, an aphid that came to be known as Phylloxera vastatrix, was especially damaging. This microscopic insect, native to the Mississippi Valley of the United States, eastern United States, practically destroyed all the world's vineyards once freed from its native land. What reassembled in its wake was the blueprint for the modern wine industry that we know today. The explosive transformation of phylloxera cannot be overstated. It is not known what vessel bore this pestilence to European soils, nor even precisely when. All we know is that at some point, packed in damp earth, an otherwise innocent-looking bundle of vines made its way across the Atlantic, a million tiny Oppenheimers riding on the roofs. First symptoms, first responders. 
1866, a grower in the southern Rhone, roughly halfway between Avenon and Orange, reported the death of a block of vines. In the span of a few growing seasons, the leaves had withered and dried, and then the vines themselves succumbed. Two years later, with the infection clearly spreading, the French government set up three-man coalition to investigate. The dead vines, once exhumed, revealed nothing but diseased and rotted roots. The plants directly adjacent to the infection, however, swarmed with microscopic yellow bugs. The committee recognized the aphid as a close relative of the oak phylloxera. To underscore the particularly deadly nature of this tiny assassin, they appended its name with Vastastric. That's V-A-S-T-A-T-R-I-S, Vastastric. Latin for the devastator. What happened next is fascinating. The committee, led by Jules Emile Planchon, professor of botany and pharmacy at the University de Montpellier, rejoiced in the discovery. Surely their sleuthing had uncovered the criminal and the world could now move forward in seeking a cure. But instead of applause, they were rewarded with doubt and ridicule. As none of the three were insect specialists, entomologists publicly denounced their findings, sure that a lone aphid was incapable of such hostile destruction. Excuse me. This was damaging enough to the commission's cause, but the worst attacks came directly from Paris, the seat of France's medical community. There, the leading minds believed phylloxera was merely the symptom of some inherent vine melody, not the actual cause of death, and called for an investigation into what factors climate, soil, too many years of asexual reproduction, might be weakening the plants. This mirrored the dominant medical philosophy of the day, that people did not get sick from external forces such as germs, but because ill due to internal imbalances of the body, a holdover from the ancient concept of humors. As such, the Paris contingent argued that Phylloxera's role was no greater than that of a vulture, drawn in by the carrion perfume of the already dying vines. To understand this chism, one must take a step back and consider this moment in the evolution of human thought. Phylloxera struck when France was, for all intents and purposes, fresh off the Enlightenment. This was a period from the late 1600s to the early 1800s during which the scientific method began to supplant the more mystical, superstitious thinking of yore. Needless to say, the transition did not happen uniformly, nor in one fell swoop. So while science was more scientific than ever in the mid-1800s, it was still a fairly primordial field. Louis Pasteur, whose work could prove fundamental to our understanding of microbial life, including fermentation, was early in his career at this point. Charles Darwin published On the Origin of Species in 1859, but was still considered something of a radical. And Gregor Mendel, that famous Australian monk with his pea plants, proposed a genetic theory of trait inheritance in 1865, 
but his work would remain largely unknown until the turn of the century. In short, France's collective medical brain was stuck between two modes of thinking, with strong opinions abundant and abundant pride on either side of the divide. Initially, the phylloxera as symptom camp had the greater numbers, and as they were based in Paris, the more official platform. As time passed, however, an increasing amount of evidence stacked in favor of phylloxera as cause. In 1869, a massive flood kept a fully infected vineyard submerged for several weeks. The proprietor was delighted to see the vines looking healthier than ever the following growing season. The bug, he surmised, had drowned. It was also noted around this time that phylloxera never seemed to strike extremely sandy vineyards. These observations furthered the notion that phylloxera itself was the culprit, as only when relief was provided from its insistent sucking would vines thrive. A full seven years would pass between the discovery of phylloxera vasterix and its official pronouncement as the cause of the malady. Years in which the debate between the two sides played out publicly the series of letters and editorials that were rife with incendiary comments, professional jealousy, and personal attacks. Reading through these exchanges today is not unlike watching a horror movie wherein the protagonist bickers about which way to run while the killer circles ever closer. Indeed, phylloxera racked up quite the body count while the scientists squabbled. After chewing its way through the Languedoc and Provence, the louse reached Bordeaux in 1869, where it infected 100,000 of the region's 170,000 hectares. Having consumed its fill of claret, phylloxera turned and headed north. By the time of consensus in 1875, the knife's edge was mere inches from the delicate throats of Burgundy, the Loire, and Champagne. While the powers that be um, origin story and the quest for, um, for kryptonite is this section. While the powers that be in Paris searched for clues to the plague inside the vine, Planchon and his colleagues set to work examining the bug. A major point of interest was its origin. Where had phylloxera come from? Planchon's original published findings had made their way across the ocean and to the desk of C.V. Riley, who was at the time the state entomologist of Missouri. Riley recognized the aphid as similar to an American species that seemed to feed only on the leaves of grapevines and suggested they might be one and the same. Prochon tested this hypothesis in 1870 by placing infected leaves from American vines near pots planted with vinifera. Within a few days, the bug had migrated underground to feast on the European root. This not only confirmed that they were the same insect, but also that the origin was likely American. <coughs> Excuse me, let me take a sip of wine here. With phylloxera rightly fingered and its birthplace revealed, the scientists' energies now focused on a cure. 
The French government had opened the floor to the general population with a generous bounty on the head of the pest. The result was a torrent of fantastical home remedies, each more preposterous than the last, more than one involving some combination of urine and garlic. Burning proved ineffectual, as did prayer. Flooding enjoyed a moderate success, but was limited in application, as only the flattest veneers could be physically submerged for the recommended length of time, which was 40 days. Plus, the treatment had to be repeated every year. Sand was also a weapon of choice. Not only were holes dug around the trunks of mines and filled with the stuff, a laborious enterprise, but multiple new vineyards were developed on dunes and beaches. Proximity to the waves proved problematic, however, as more than one of those vineyards washed out to sea. <laughs> Ultimately, two main strategies emerged as the best way to fight phylloxera, each with their own ardent camp. The chemist recommended the use of pesticides, while the Americanist thought salvation would be achieved by using native American vines in some form, whether through direct planting, the creation of European-American hybrids, or grafting. As with the phylloxera cause symptom debate, this battle stoked the notoriously passionate French into near hysteria. Initially, the chemists held the advantage, having both history and the government on their side. Years before phylloxera had been had made itself known, another American scourge had threatened Europe's vineyards. Odium. Now, odium is uh, the leaves turn a powdery gray and leads to dehydration of the grapes. And um, it's uh, powdery mildew is basically odium. According to Galea Maloney and Johann Swinnen, odium caused French wine production to decrease from 54 million to 11 million hectoliters between 1847 and 1854. That's only seven years. Thankfully, in 1855, it was discovered that regular sulfur dusting could alleviate the danger, and production rebounded almost immediately. Such a complete triumph led many scientists to believe a similar solution was possible for phylloxera, and significant government and private funding was thrown in the way of chemical research. After an elaborate series of trial and error, carbon disulfide, or CS2, was tapped as the phylloxera asphyxiate of choice. This was an imperfect solution, as not only was CS2 extremely dangerous, its fumes are highly combustible, its application was both tedious and costly. To keep phylloxera at bay, CS2 had to be administered around the vines twice yearly, but both in the spring and in the fall. A large syringe-like device was engineered as the delivery mechanism, and gas had to be injected at multiple points per square yard. Soil and climate requirements were extremely specific. The ground had to be porous enough to receive the gas, but not so friable that it would escape easily. Also, 
If rain came too soon after treatment, reapplication was necessary. The elaborate, expensive nature of this process ensured that only the wealthiest uh, vineyards with the most prestigious landholdings could help to keep the practice going for any length of time. Meanwhile, experiments with American vines were yielding mixed results. Some producers had simply replaced their old vines with American ones, but the wines were disagreeable. You gotta remember, this is a side note here, American muscadine grape was our native, so that's probably why. Hybrids were more successful. The hope was that crossbreeding would marry European flavors with American fortitude, but the results were never so glorious. Most hybrids were of limited utility, proving only partially resistant to phylloxera and often only partly palatable. Still, they became a popular option internationally, and though hybrids are now outlawed in most of Europe's appellations, they continue to play a significant role in many wine regions, especially in the more marginal corners of the New World, which would be an interesting thing to follow up on that paragraph there. It was growing increasingly clear that grafting European varieties onto American rootstock was only real and permanent solution. Various scientists had been beating the drum for this for years, but the strategy was viewed by many as a last-ditch effort to be tried only when all other options had been exhausted. The fear was that the American roots would taint the flavor of the wine, even after this had been largely disproved. The underlying prejudice was difficult to overcome. After all, American vines were the very agents of evil that had carried phylloxera to the French soil. The first laws officially sanctioning grafting onto American rootstock were passed in 1878 and 1879. But even then, the practice confined exclusively to the South and only to the most heavily infected zones. Grafting remained prohibited in Bordeaux until 1881 and in Burgundy until 1887, when desperate growers effectively forced administrators' hands. But grafting was complicated business. Not all American rootstock was impervious to phylloxera, and certainly not all were suited to the various soils and climates of France. The identification and development of proper rootstocks took years of experimentation and was not without false starts. More than one bad recommendation was made in the early years, meaning growers who might have spent their last dimes to replant were once again faced with fields of dead and dying vines. Still, the collective vineyard of France pushed on, and it is estimated that by 1900, two-thirds of French vines were bound to American roots. The Old New France. Phylloxera transformed France in several profound ways. One of the most dramatic changes was to the scale of the industry. Viticulture had expanded more or less steadily since the French Revolution. Per Rod Phillips, area under vine reached its apogee in 1874 with 2,465,000 hectares, roughly three times France's total plantings today. The Organisation Internationale de la Vigne et du Vin, 
which I think is the Vineyard Organization of France, reported 791,000 hectares in 2014. Most wine regions shrank after phylloxera, and some disappeared altogether. While only a handful, notably the Languedoc, grew in proportion. Viticulture was completely overhauled. Prior to phylloxera, most of France's vineyards were field blends rather than organized blocks of varieties and were generally propagated in foil or in a crowd via layering. In this method, a cordon or an entire vine was buried until it set roots. The results were the jumbled mismatch of vines at densities two and a half to three times higher than is common today and complex root systems that would be several hundred years old. Sepages, capages adjusted as well. For most regions, phylloxera provided an opportunity to separate the wheat from the shaft. And countless poorly regarded vine types either experienced diminished plantings or were eradicated. And of course, the use of grafted vines allowed vineyards to be planted in rows and along trellises, which modernized farming and opened the door to mechanism. In truth, some of these changes were already in motion before Phylloxera's descent. For example, the area surrounding Paris was once carpeted in vine, the wine from which filled the cups of the nation's thirsty capital. The expansion of the canal system and the development of railways in the 1840s and 1850s suddenly gave the drinkers of Paris ready access to more robust libations of the Languedoc, which were producing half of France's wine by the 1850s. As a result, the greater Parisian vineyards and much of the Yonne were already in decline by the late 1860s. Over in Bordeaux, the odium outbreak had caused a shuffling of varieties to favor those with resistance to mildew. And the finest houses were already working to rid themselves of the less prestigious wine grapes. Still, no matter the existing tra- trajectory, there can be no question, <coughs> excuse me, could be no question that phylloxera sped things along significantly. However devastating and expensive it may have been, it was also a heck of a shortcut. Lower and Jura, both the Lower and the Jura regions experienced dramatic transformations in the wake of phylloxera. Reportedly, before the outbreak, a full two-thirds of the Nantes was planted to Foy Blanc. Saint-Cyr was predominantly a red wine region, and Muscadet was nowhere near as prevalent as it is today. As with Saint-Cyr, the Jura switched its lines from red to white grapes, and the entire Appalachian shrank significantly. According to Wink Lork's book on the subject, 62% of land under vine was lost after phylloxera, never to be replanted. Alsace. Alsace underwent a particularly tumultuous time during the phylloxera outbreak, as the brief Franco-Prussian War saw the area annexed to Germany in 1870. The German response to phylloxera was faster and more severe than that of the French. 
Alsatian vintners were ordered to uproot and burn their vines and leave the land fallow for a hundred, or, or I'm sorry, for a handful of years. When they were finally permitted to replant, the German government allowed them only hybrids. It would take Alsace's return to French rule in 1918 for the hillsides to be returned to the noble varieties. Bordeaux, as previously discussed, Bordeaux was in flux by the time flocks were struck. Historically, the area's vineyards had been planted to dozens of different wine grapes, but there was already a movement to prioritize the varieties in vogue today. Excuse me, another sip of wine here. (laughs) All right, I'm back. (laughs) That momentum got it bumped (laughs) during the odium crisis. By the time of the 1855 classification, Melbach, which demonstrated a high resistance to mildew, was quite dominant despite its notoriously irregular fruit set. Phylloxera changed all that as both Carmenere and Melbeck proved difficult to graft and therefore lost real estate. Melbeck still maintained a measurable presence in Bordeaux until the massive frost of eighteen or I'm sorry, of nineteen fifty six, when it was finally muscled out by more reliable and fashionable varieties. Burgundy. Burgundy boasted fewer varieties than most regions before phylloxera, but still enjoyed far greater diversity than is seen today. In his book, Pearl of the Coat, Helen Meadows reported that by 1878, the year of the first phylloxera sighting in Burgundy, only 43% of the red grapes grown in the Cote d'Or were Pinot Noir. The rest were Gamay. In addition, the interplanting of Chardonnay, Pinot Gris, and Aligot, or Aligot was common. A-L-I-G-O-T-E. I'm not familiar with that race. During the phylloxera, many less prestigious or Gamay-dominated vineyards were left to languish, as only the top producers could afford the expensive CS2 injections that kept the Laos at bay. Famously, the last vineyards to be replanted into grafted vines in Burgundy were Domaine de la Romanée, Conte Romanée Conte, and part of Richbourg. Both were pulled out in 1945 when the war made carbon desulfide impossible to come by and were replanted in 1947. (coughs) Champagne. Phylloxera hit Champagne laxed. The bug wasn't discovered in the Aube, A-U-B-E, until 1888. While a date, late discovery might seem like a blessing, as the mysteries of and remedies for Phylloxera had been figured out by this point, the timing was actually unfortunate. Much of France's vineyards, uh, vineyard land had recovered by then, and production was once again robust but France now had to contend with the international market that had sprung up during the infestation. Suddenly, there was altogether too much wine. This glut 
resulted in an economic crisis, and many in Champaign couldn't afford to replant until after the turn of the century. Some were just getting started when World War I turned their vineyard into battlefields. Travels of war aside, Champagne experienced a similar makeover to that of France's other wine regions. Vineyard land both shrunk. By the 1920s, the area under Vine and Marne was half of what it was prior to Phylloxera and changed in composition. The permitted varieties winnowed appreciably, but many consumers are aware are unaware of the handful of more archaic grapes that remain legally allowed in Champagne. These varieties include Petit Mislor, Arbane, Fromentou, which is Pinot Gris, and Pinot Blanc. While they represent only a small amount of planted area, a dedicated group of producers make a point to celebrate them, such as the Hart Fraise and Aubrey. There are also a few patches of own rooted vines scattered throughout Champagne. The most famous parcels are the walled vineyard in Ai, which is the Clos Terrace and Clos Saint Jacques, that Bolger used to create his Velas Vin Francais bottling. Bollinger still farms these plots using the ancient system of Provence, which is quite laborious. Cyril de la Rue, U.S. Commercial Director for Bollinger, jokes that these small vineyards take the most work, requiring three to four times as much manual labor to cultivate. Fraud in the rise of the AOC system. The dramatic drop in production in the phylloxera infestation forced France to import a significant amount of wine. It also inspired a good deal of fraud. In addition to raisin wine, created from dry Greek and Turkish grapes, unscrupulous producers were making sugar wine and piquet, created by steeping pressed grape skins in water and then fermenting it. Merchants were also cutting corners, blending wines from various regions and countries and marking them as being from specific estates or prestigious growing areas. Champagne was the most immune to this last type of fraud as it was one of the few regions to sell a majority of its wine in bottles rather than in casks. Bordeaux was the next to adopt this practice, and in 1924, Monton, Haute-Briand, and Margaux switched to estate bottling. Fraud was not necessarily a new development in the French wine industry, though. Certainly, the scale of fraudulent activity reached a new high during phylloxera. The issue was that once France, or once French wine production recovered in the late 1880s and 1890s, the financially battered producers couldn't compete against both international products and cheaply made fall wines, F-A-U-X, fall wines. <clears throat> James Simpson, author of Creating Wine, Posts that in 1890, raisin and sugar wines accounted for at least a sixth of French wine consumption. And these wines didn't just disappear once actual production began to rise. With the market flooded, prices plummeted, and great unrest was sown among the growers. In 1907, over half a million people marched on Montpellier, a 
protest of unprecedented size. The Starro government took notice, and while it had already begun heavily taxing imports and attempting to mitigate fraud, it now turned its attention to the creation and protection of Appalachians. In 1935, Appalachian de-origin control provisions didn't sprout fully formed from the head of some official. They were the culmination of many small legal steps that began in the 1880s. First, wine was defined as being made from fresh grapes, and water additions were made illegal. Another hurdle to raisin wine and to raisin wine production. Next, the government sought to legally demarcate specific growing areas, such as Champagne and Bordeaux, and prosecute merchants who misrepresented a wine's origin. Hybrids were then forbidden from inclusion in wines labeled with an appellation, and laws were passed that aimed to control viticulture and methods of production. While today the AOC system is sometimes decried as being too restrictive, none can deny its effectiveness at preserving regional identities and heritage. As a testimony to its success, it became the blueprint for almost every other Appalachian program established around the world. International ramifications. Prior to the triple American plagues of odium, phylloxera, and paranospora, I guess that's how it's pronounced, P-E-R-O-N-O-S-P-O-R-A, which is downing mildew, it's a pathogen, plant pathogen that causes downing mildew. Prior to this, France was the world's lead, largest producer and exporter of wine. Within the span of a single decade, the 1980s, or I'm sorry, 1880s, France's phylloxera-induced wine deficit turned it into the world's largest importer of wine. This had a massive impact on the global wine industry, boasting existing regions and inspiring, inspiring the creation of new ones, some of which were informed by French mentors who had fled their homeland in search of new beginnings. Of course, phylloxera eventually spread far beyond France, which complicated the international market tremendously. The differing responses of the variously affected nations make for an interesting study. Spain, one of the first nations to benefit from France's crisis, was Spain. France had looked to Spain to replenish its wine reserves since the first outbreak of odium in the 1840s. Odium had hit just prior to the development of Europe's now extensive rail system, so Spain's surge Excuse me. So Spain's surge of viticultural growth was concentrated around major ports such as Alcante. As Flocter came after the rails, wine regions in the center of the country could respond. Nationwide, Spain experienced a 40% growth in vineyard land between 1860 and 1888. As early as 1877, a provincial trade agreement was struck between the two nations, allowing for the easy flow of Spanish wine into France. According to Maloney and Swineman, 
This allowed Spain to surpass France as the world's largest exporter of wines, with France's biggest client. Though much of the emphasis was on bulk wine, some quality regions emerged. Most, one of the most important was Rojo, where the influence of Bordeaux emerged. I'm sorry, where the influence of Doe was already established through the training of Luciana Marquis de Mariata and Camilla Hurtego de Amaiza in the 1850s. Two things ultimately served to stifle Spain's incredible growth. First, Philoxera crossed national borders, destroying a third of Spain's vineyards between the late 1880s and the First World War. On the among the casualties were Prairie, which shrank from 5,000 to 600 hectares, and Navarra, which lost around 99% of its vines between 1891 and 1896. The other major blow came when French vineyards started to recover in the 1890s. With domestic production on the rise, imports became a liability, and France raised aggressive tariffs on Spanish wine in 1892. This was devastating to the Spanish economy and the vineyard lands shrunk considerably in many regions. Germany and Switzerland. It's arguable that these countries share not only a common language, but also a mutual love of order and efficiency. For most nations, Philoxera's advance proved impossible to stop. But while colder regions have the advantage of a longer winter dormancy, it was ultimately the organized ruthlessness of the German and Swiss approach that spared their vineyards from the worst of phylloxera. Once an infection was discovered inside, the, inside Switzerland, the vineyard, surrounding vines, and land were treated with enough CS2 to kill the roots and therefore the food source. This was followed by a strict and extended period of quarantine. The German approach was similar, according to George Gell in his book, Dining on the Vine, but with the added flare of a petroleum soap, Vine Bonpar, a second CS2 application, and a military cordon to guard the site during decontamination. I'll tell you what, they were serious about getting rid of that thing, weren't they? Greece. Greece and France have a long history of trade, especially as it pertains to wine. But in the aftermath of phylloxera, Greece had a very specific role to play, supplying raisins to desperate winemakers lacking raw materials. Following the Greek War of Independence, 1821 to 1832, Greece began exporting raisins to the British market for use in their puddings. While the British were formidable consumers, the French market that opened in the 1870s was insatiable. French winemakers would steep raisins in warm water and ferment the resulting liquid into something resembling wine. The demand became so great that Greek land dedicated to raisin production jumped from 24,000 hectares in the 1860s to 114,000 hectares in the 1880s with much of the growth concentrated in the Peloponnese. This rapid increase cemented raisins as the dominant agricultural product of Greece, as well as their primary export. But the 
re, uh, the recuperation of French vineyards in the late 1880s and the punishing tariffs and import limitations that were instigated in 1889 were devastating to the Greek economy. Per Wines of Greece, quote, the raisin crisis drove much of the Agurian population to abandon the countryside and seek a better life, either in urban centers or in other countries. In some areas, such as the Peloponnese, this crisis resulted in severe social upheaval. End quote. Meanwhile, as farmers rioted in central Greece, Phylloxera had crept into Greece's northern area by 1898. The pest quickly ravaged Macedonia and the area around uh, Thessaloniki and spread southward from there. Its progress was slow, however. The Laos didn't reach the Peloponnese until the 1960s. Crete was reached in the 1970s. Records are imperfect, but local growers are convinced that countless rare indigenous grape varieties were permanently lost during the Phylloxera crisis. Notably, Santorini remains Phylloxera-free. Hence, its incredibly old vines and ancient method of cultivation. North Africa. What transpired in French-controlled Algeria, Tunisia, and Morocco during and after Phylloxera is both compelling and tragic. While a small wine industry already existed in North Africa, France's Phylloxera invasion spurred sudden and dramatic growth. This was especially true in Algeria, a full colony. Tunisia and Morocco were French protectorates. During the crisis, the French government offered subsidies for vineyards in the south of France to relocate to Africa and build up the wine industry, an opportunity seized upon by some 10,000 farmers and winemakers. In Algeria alone, land under vine expanded from 17,000 hectares in 1878 to more than 60,000 hectares in 1885. With their vineyards rebounding, the French government enacted harsh trade deals with foreign countries in the late 1880s and 1890s. But as Algeria was considered part of France, it was exempt from such penalties. Algeria's growth continued, and by 1960, it was the fourth largest wine producer in the world and the single largest exporter. That changed following Algerian independence in 1962. With easy access to the French market, well, I'm sorry, without easy access to the French market, demand plummeted and Algeria's domestic consumption was too low to absorb the surplus. Within a relatively short span of time, much of the vineyard land was grubbed up and the once prosperous industry effectively collapsed. Australia and South America. Australia takes phylloxera very seriously. According to Vine Health Australia, a phylloxera watchdog group, 74% of South Australia's commercial wine grapes vines are still planted on their own rootstocks. This is a remarkable percentage considering phylloxera found its way to Australia's shores as early as 1877. <clears throat> Another sip of wine, please. 
As with Germany and Switzerland, the country managed to maintain the threat to be a decisive and extreme action. As soon as an infected infection was spotted, that vineyard was ripped up, the vines destroyed, and the land left fallow for many years. The strategy, known as death by extinction, was clearly a winning one. Today, Australia is divided into three zones. Phylloxera exclusion zones, called PEZs, Phylloxera risk zones, called PRZs, and Phylloxera infected zones, PIZ, with a five-kilometer vine-free buffer surrounding each zone of infection. So far, the bug has only been discovered in Victoria, where it did considerable damage. Queensland, and New South Wales, with the happy result that Australia boosts a high percentage of some of the world's oldest vines. Even so, the government remains admirably vigilant, conducting aerial scans every three to five years, searching for clusters of weakened vines. Meanwhile, down in South America, Phylloxera has only a scant presence is a, it is effectively non-existent in Chile and only menaces a few contained pockets of Argentina. South America was fortunate to receive its Bordeaux vine material just two decades before Phylloxera hit and only five years before the odium outbreak. As in Australia, the majority of these nations' vines are own-rooted. Interestingly, Chile and Argentina's flagship grapes are Carmenere and Melbeck the very varieties that were effectively booted out of Bordeaux for not grafting well. I asked a handful of nurserymen about this room and disposition, and all assured me that today there is no problem grafting either vine type. Dr. Andrew Walker, professor of viticulture at UC Davis, offered the following conjecture. There is no inherent genetic reason that a particular variety would reject a graft. That really only ever happens when either the skin or the rootstock is virused. Cells at the graft union will kill themselves off to avoid contamination. But Melbeck and Carmenere were historically known to turn red in the autumn. That typically suggests at least some degree of virus. My guess is that the majority of 19th century Melbeck and Carmenere were likely virused and therefore hard to graft while today's growers have access to clean plant material. North America, then North America again. Though phylloxera is native to the United States, it was contained in the eastern half of the country until sometime in the 1850s or 1860s. Prior to its first official diagnosis in Agustin Harasti's Sonoma Vineyard at Buena Vista in 1863, California's west coast enjoyed over 100 years of own-rooted winemaking, rustic though it may have been. At first, the pest seemed to spread slowly, and vineyard land exploded during the 1880s. By the 1890s, however, the aphid had achieved critical mass and quickly undid much of the previous decade's accomplishments. In Napa alone, vine plantation strength from around 20,000 acres in the beginning of the century to about 3,000 
by its conclusion as 1800. In response, the California State Legislature established an investigatory commission and also asked the University of California to establish a viticultural department. The devastation was not restricted to the north of the state by any means. While France's mistakes, flooding, CS2, reliance, poor rootstock recommendations, were incredulously repeated in California, Phylloxera worked its way through the state. Though salvation eventually arrived in the form of the uh, rupestrous St. George rootstock. Any major recovery was forestalled by the terrible national economy and the increasingly influential temperance movement. And so, the briefly triumphant American wine industry limped along until Prohibition laid it temporarily to rest in 1920. Following 1933's repeal, California wine had to start over from scratch, but multiple forces were aligned against it. The Great Depression, World War II, and the national preference for cocktails and sweet wine kept investment at bay. By the 1960s, things had started to look up, and a small but growing number of dedicated producers were crafting wines of serious merit. And after the 1976 Judgment of Paris, California experienced a wave of development that has yet to crest. The dramatic growth of the 1960s and 70s and 80s seemed to be heralded to coming of a golden era for California. There was only one problem. Some 60 to 70 percent of the new vineyards had been planted on an insignificantly resistant rootstock. In 1958, a report was published by viticulturist Lloyd Litter that recommended AXR number I as a superior all purpose rootstock to the finicky St. George. What the report failed to mention was that AXR number I, a cross between an Araman, which is vinifera, and a Repestris, was susceptible to phylloxera. This particular chink in the armor had been documented by the French, the Sicilians, and the South Africans during the first wave of global phylloxera epidemic. And again in 1921, report by F.T. Boletti at the University of California. That AXR number I was ever recommended is baffling enough, but to make matters worse, nine years would pass between Phylloxera's reemergence in 1980 and UC Davis' official denouncement of that rootstock. By that time, it is estimated that around 50,000 acres of vines needed to be replanted at a total cost of over $1 billion. The silver lining of this strategy was that California ventures could completely redesign the vineyards, which resulted in the refining of varieties statewide. Notably, 1991 saw Cabernet Sauvignon finally overtake Chardonnay as the most widely planted wine grape in Napa Valley. And yet, American optimism persisted. Oregon, whose wine industry really didn't get started until the 1970s, planted a significant amount of vines on their own roots before phylloxera was discovered there in 1990. And nearly all of Washington State's vineyards remain ungrafted and uninfected. 
Chris Barron of Coyes in Walla Walla thinks it's only a matter of time before Prolocter descends. Quote, I was the first to plant grafted vines in Walla Walla in, 20, uh, in year 2000. I still farm lots of own rooted vines, but don't feel comfortable putting all my eggs in one basket. I need to protect my investment. End quote. Many believe that Washington's dry condition and extreme winters have also kept phylloxera at bay. Deconstructing phylloxera. While certainly a level of institutional neglect is responsible for California's double serving of phylloxera, part of the blame rests with some long misunderstood elements of phylloxera's life cycle, as well as its complex relationship to rootstocks. Fundamental to the enduring mysteries of phylloxera is the fact that it is a microscopic insect that spends much of its life underground. This makes it incredibly difficult to observe. According to UC Davis' Dr. Walker, much of the known biology of phylloxera for the last 150 years was at least part conjecture extrapolated from the life cycles of similar aphids. Most accounts describe phylloxera's life cycle in five phases, including both winged and subterranean forms, and both sexual and asexual modes of reproduction. Underneath the ground, an entirely female wingless population of phylloxera feeds on roots, reproducing asexually to turn out massive numbers of clonal offspring. Late in the growing season, a number of phylloxera, again female, are born with wings and migrate above ground, possibly due to population pressure. Though these insects have wings, they possess no muscles to power them, so they use them more like sails and fan out on the breeze, landing on the leaves of some nearby vine. These phylloxera lay eggs in the leaves, which hatch into both male and female forms. Interestingly, these offspring possess neither wings nor digestive organs. They were conceived only to mate. Following intercourse, the male dies while the female lays a single egg in the bank of the on the bark of the vine, which winters over near a dormant bud. Meanwhile, the existing population of phylloxera is killed off by the winter cold. The egg hatches in the spring producing a single wingless female who returns to the leaves to produce a sexual. Sometime during the summer, a portion of her offspring returns underground to feed on the roots, starting the cycle all over again. Critically, as each female can lay up to 200 eggs at a time, only one insect is sufficient to spark a massive infestation. While much of the above has been proven true, a few of the details are dubious. Dr. Walker claims that the so-called winter eggs have rarely been observed in the wild, and what's more likely is that a small but hardy portion of the phylloxera population is able to hibernate to the winter. Merrells are also rarely seen and are therefore unlikely to be a reliable annual occurrence. What's more likely, uh, Dr. Walker, is that phylloxera acts in a similar way to nematodes, reproducing asexually until some environmental stress triggers the formation of a male. The purpose of this would be to induce genetic variants via sexual reproduction and in the hopes of overcoming some difficulty, 
such as an incompatible food source. When AXR number one or number I failed in California, scientists claimed that the fault resided in the development of a new strain of phylloxera, biotype B. This theory was championed by several faculty members at UC Davis and then graduate student Dr. Stephen Krebs. Dr. Walker eventually joined UC Davis and began working on the phylloxera problem with a focus on their genetic diversity within California. Quote, it became clear to me almost immediately that there wasn't so much a biotype A and B, but many biotypes, or more correctly, strains, he said, unquote. Each of these strains came with their own meal preferences, which made resistance fluid in concept. No rootstock is fully resistant to phylloxera, Dr. Walker explains. Phylloxera does feed on the roots of American varieties, but only on the tiny feeder roots, which replenish so rapidly that the vine can survive. The fatal vulnerability of vinifera is that phylloxera can feed on its larger roots, causing swollen, lumpy calluses called tuberosites. These often split, allowing various bacteria and fungi to infect the plant, ultimately killing it. It is not phylloxera itself that kills the vine, Dr. Walker continues. Phylloxera is merely the agent provocateur that allows for the introduction of deadly pathogens. And as an aside here, if you remember at the beginning, that's what the French were saying. They, at the very start, said it wasn't that bug, it was something else. What was it? What was the bug causing it, though? While American native leaves can be covered with engulfs, that will not kill the vine. There is an inverse immunity relationship between resistance at the root and leaf level among vine types. No, my time is not. Uh, my engineer is actually young. Yeah, the time is up. But we had a glitch, and because of the glitch, oh. we're still good. <laughs> you know, just keep saying your time is up. Time is up. <laughs> uh, it's a new show. It's a new 90 so, minutes. <laughs> yes, we, we're still good. You know, 20 minutes, 24. So how did AR, uh, AXR number one survive so long before failing, and is biotype B real or a government conspiracy? The thing is, Dr. Walker says, after the first infection, it really takes 10 to 20 years for a vine to die from, from a phylloxera attack. As the decline is slow, long before the leaves start to wither, the vine is infected. The earliest measurable symptom is a decline in potassium in the must. In that light, it is possible for a vine, a vine to survive in soils infected by phylloxera for a considerable amount of time. Also, the lifespan can be indefinite if the local population of phylloxera is not able to feed on the large roots. Though most of phylloxera's reproductive cycle results in perfect clones, the odd sexual combination can result in the generation of increased genetic diversity. If a strain of phylloxera develops that is suddenly able to feed on a given vine's major roots, it's just a matter of time before the population reaches a fatal tipping point. While many viticulturists might view this as paranoid, Dr. Walker insists that potential danger is real. 
He says, I've isolated strains that are capable of feeding on the root tips of almost all rootstocks, including many that are considered highly resistant. We don't know whether this level of feeding has always been present or whether it evolved over many years in vineyards, but it bears studying and preparing for more aggressive strains of phylloxera. With phylloxera, there is no absolutes. Much of the pest behavior depends on its environment. Just as it cannot thrive in too sandy soil, phylloxera's dormant season is greatly extended in cold climates. <coughs> and the resulting truncated growing season means fewer reproductive cycles for phylloxera, and therefore fewer bugs. Similarly, climates with very dry summers, like in California, will suppress the wing form, which also shows slows the advance. John Williams of Frog's Leap claims that farming can also be a factor. Quote, I am of the belief that it was the widespread use of drip irrigation that made the phylloxera infestation in the 1980s so deadly. When Williams had purchased his red barn grass, the vineyard was planted in AXR and was in rough shape. By converting it to dry farming, his vines lasted far longer than many of his colleagues. Drip irrigation brings the roots closer to the surface, he says, which is where phylloxera lives. Whether or not you view Dr. Walker's warnings as realistic, his history is replete with teachable moments that not about dropping one's guard around phylloxera. At the very least, it is worthwhile to keep the conversation going. I don't give any talks on phylloxera now because no one cares anymore, laments Dr. Walker, but they should. Jeez, there's quite a bit on the end of this here. Uh, let's see where I'm going, but they should. Phylloxera irrevocably changed the world of wine. But did it alter wine itself? The answer to this question lies in whether you believe that grafted vines produce different tasting fruit than own rooted wines. I can confirm to you that when you use American roots, you change the taste of the wine, says Lloyd Pasquat. Pasquat is a bit of a renegade in Bordeaux. His brand, Libor Potter, works with own rooted vines. I density planting, and historic varieties. Uh, with grafted vines, he says, one cannot make a vine de terror, only a varietal wine. For example, Cabernet Sauvignon was created for gravelly soil with oceanic weather. If you use ungrafted Cabernet Sauvignon, it can only do well in these conditions. If you graft, you can plant anywhere, but you lose the specificity of Capage or terror, you lose the true taste of the wine. And it goes on quoting others here in the fact that it also makes a difference in the taste of the wine and all that. Um, this has been a long show tonight already. I'll tell you what, I'm going to finish this next week, this last video, when we're talking about the taste uh, of the wine. And what is done to it in, in the program tonight, we've had a long program. But the history of phylloxera, I, I find fascinating. I, I found that a fascinating article. 
uh, I will finish up the last bit of this here next week instead of uh, continuing on now. And hmm. stop now. Okay. Uh, notes on the wrong line of my calendar. So let me uh, close that out. And we have uh, wow, 18 minutes. And I'm thinking, okay, that's yeah, the time is off, isn't it? It's uh, it's yeah, not it like is. we're looking, we're not looking for not eight like o'clock or eight hours here. Eight because <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stopped and started. Yeah, that was odd. <clears throat> so, um, I guess whoever programs the show needs to look at the the time length more carefully <laughs> next time. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I guess you've been doing oh. it for nine years. First time it's ever happened. You're, you're no, <laughs> not a problem. At least we know what'll happen now, because yes, you know, I've, God, you that. like a drill. Like, Yep, always, yeah. always got to have a drill somewhere. Um, Case okay. of an actual God. alert. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this has been an actual emergency. You would have been informed yeah, already. Tune in. That's <laughs> right. Um, we will we will go ahead and close the show for tonight and uh, continue with this topic next Thursday. Uh, that would be April the fifth at seven p.m. Eastern time, right? Yeah, April the fifth. And we've got coming up this weekend, we have, well, today was opening day of baseball. Mm-hmm. In fact, here's a little tidbit for you, any of you sports fans. Mm-hmm. All teams played today on opening day. Normally, wow. it's just two teams play, or, you know, two teams play each other, and then everybody starts the next day. It's usually Chicago and somebody else. And that usually starts the, the baseball season. This is the first time in I don't know how many years, I, I, 20, 25, something. I mean, it's been a long time that all the major league teams open on the same day, except for Washington oh. and Cincinnati. They got rained out, but they were still scheduled. So uh, an unusual thing there happening. Um, we have Easter coming up Sunday. Passover starts tomorrow night. April Fool's Day is Sunday also. Uh Let's see what else is happening. Oh, tomorrow night is a full moon or a blue moon. It's the second Ooh. full moon of the month. So we have a wow. blue moon tomorrow night. And uh, let's see. I think that's it. Um, so uh, hmm. be safe and yeah. drink lots of That's right. And be sure to tune in next week, Thursday, April the 5th. 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see you all, and uh, thanks a lot for tuning in. And um, it'll be, Thank you it'll for be uh, on the uh, it'll be changed. So <laughs> it'll be on one, one show <laughs> no in about an hour or two. <laughs> Takes a while. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see you all next week. Thanks again. Have thanks for This concludes tonight's broadcast of All About Wine on Blog Talk Radio with your host, Ron. For show information, links to All About Wine on Twitter and Facebook, or to be a guest on this show, visit the show website at www.allaboutwinebtr.com. Archive shows are available for download on iTunes or on our show page at blogtalkradio.com forward slash allaboutwine. 
Thank you for listening. Drink responsibly, and we'll see you next time on All About Wine.